Am I right there? Is it 26 or 28? 26. <laughs> uh, into chapter 2, verse 17. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the, all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. And you shall have food for, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The, the name of the first river is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land was good. Bedellum and onyx stone were there. The name of the second river is Jihan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river was Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord took, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, 
for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're saying to yourself, well, we've already read parts of these passages in this series, you say that's correct. We've kind of been harbored here for a number of weeks in these opening pages of the Bible because they're so very foundational. And in a time of great confusion, a lot of people asking a lot of questions about life, how wonderful that in the first couple of pages of our uh, holy book that we find real mooring for our souls that is a real anchor. And I think about it this way. Another way to put it is to say, no matter where you're at in life, what kind of person you are, I think you have uh, kind of fundamental questions at some point in your life around these categories. We could call them origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Say, so we wouldn't maybe think of those terms, but you say a lot of people do. Say, where do I come from? That's the origins. Meaning, is there a purpose to my life? What am I doing here today? Morality, who defines what's right and wrong? I mean, we all use language of ought. Where does that come from? And then, of course, destiny, that we're going to die. What does it mean? Is there a place to be for me in the end? And if you think naturalism, the kind of default position of someone coming into the world that is someone who doesn't have God in their picture, say the answers to these questions are rather unsatisfactory. Where'd you come from? Well, I'm here by chance, result of the soup. Is there meaning? Only so far as you can construct it and outcompete the person to your left and to your right. What about morality? Well, I think it's socially constructed. I just kind of get the people around me, and if there's a consensus, then that's right, and, and, and that's what defines right and wrong. Destiny? Well, no, we just uh, return to the dust. It's like before we were born. We have no consciousness of that at all. You see, those are very unsatisfactory answers for a lot of people. Say there's no real, what we could call, intellectual fecundity there. It doesn't give rise to anything that's exciting, anything that resonates with our hearts. The opening pages of the Bible, alternatively, there's a good God. He spoke matter into existence. He knows us. He's made us in his image that there's real meaning in our existence. Morality is going to be defined by him, and we're to be with him in the end. Say, how much better, I think, to be operating under the authority of Scripture than kind of floating around in space constructing our own meaning, if that's even possible to do. Now, last week, we looked at the position of marriage in God's created order, and this week, we move to an altogether different topic, and I think so. start by raising some very big questions. Uh, other questions that, again, I think every person asks, maybe, again, not in this way, but something like this, so I've listed them there on the notes. I'll just throw these out. Say, so you ever ask these? Say, we've all benefited from capitalism. I hope that's uh, not controversial in this congregation. I know I've benefited mightily from capitalism. We've all benefited from capitalism. But how do, am I to understand a system that aims to maximize gains, which capitalism does? How does that fit with Christian charity? So that's a good question. A lot of people say, well, if you're a Christian, do you have to be a socialist? A lot of people think that way. Is that, you know, is that true? What do we do with that? What kind of job should I have? Are some jobs more meaningful than others? I mean, you have a whole range out there. Are some, no doubt, better than others, but is one more Christian than, than another? What do we do about that? What happens when I have to choose between personal profit and maybe harm to the natural world? Is there a way through that impasse, or am I just not supposed to think about it? Do I need to worry about my carbon footprint? How do we understand technological advancements? Again, a lot of Christians are very nervous about that. You know, do I have to be kind of anti-technology? Or lastly, what about population strain? Uh, you know, well, is there going to be a shortage of food and energy? And if so, should we continue to have children? Say, all these are very big questions. Say, I know what you're thinking. Say, this is going to be a very long sermon. You're settling into your seat. I will go well into the third service. 
But actually, I think there's a good way in the passage that we read, actually one word, one concept that helps us a lot. You know, other people that think about these questions, it's no surprise that their answers to them start to look like a religion in themselves. If you think about this whole overview of kind of environmentalism in our place, say a lot of people's answers to those, uh, you know, back the, the age of Aquarius or Gaia, you know, Lovelock's Gaia principle where all the inorganic and organic matter is going to come together and form, you know, a utopia or the technological singularity. If you start to read people that talk along those lines, it sounds a lot like a religion because it's such a vast, all-encompassing thing. But how do we as Christ followers as those under the authority of the bible those made in his image how might we answer those questions is there a basic principle that helps us and i think it is i think it's laid down right at the very beginning and it comes chiefly in verse 28 say notice verse 28 god blessed the man and the woman that is he poured out their favor on them that he he gave he channeled his blessing upon them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sometimes this verse is called the cultural mandate. Say here we have really what it means to be, what's our responsibility, what are we supposed to do? And I think it's laid down nicely there in one word that is stewardship. That we're gonna be stewards of God's creation. You know, a lot of people read that verse and Christians get a very bad reputation because of that verse and maybe sometimes in church history and the history of those who have professed Christianity we've not done a good job of this but uh, you say this is the problem you see you you folks in your your holy book you've got a license to plunder uh, the environment it's right there you say the human beings are supposed to take advantage of, they're supposed to exploit resources and make a mess of the earth you say is that really what God's saying here does that make any sense at all now we've spent four weeks or so establishing the fact that the whole created order is God's. It's his, it's his good order that he's fashioned it. He's made it just right for humans. That is, say, would God, would that make any sense at all if we spent all these, say God's established creation. Now here you humans go do whatever you want and plunder it. Is that what God's, no, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I made everything and because I've made you in my image as rational ruling beings, that you're to behave as stewards of what's rightfully God's. You know, I think a stewardship, maybe a good analogy is like a tenant. Say a lot of us, we've either, uh, you know, we've rented a property or we have rental properties and we look for good tenants. So think about the ideal tenant. The ideal tenant is what we're driving at here. So what's the ideal tenant? He's someone or she's someone who occupies a space, enjoys it. It's a blessing to them, hopefully. They look after it. A really good tenant will leave it in better condition even than when he or she found it. You say, that's a tenant, right? But the tenant is never confused with the owner. Say there's an owner over it that the property is rightfully hers or his and the tenant is just an occupier of the space who hopefully enjoys it and uses it and orders it to the betterment of others. Say that's the idea of biblical stewardship. The God says, I've made the creation. I've made it just right. I've anchored it and fashioned it and given you mathematical laws. You're the crown of creation. Look at your minds, your ability to relate and rule. Now here it is. Look after it. You're stewards. How very different from ownership, but also, say, a pretty high responsibility. And I ask that question, say, who's the rightful owner of all things? That's the right way to put it. 
often we go through, we think very much in terms of ownership. Say, look at that bank account, the savings account, or you look at your house, say, that's mine, uh, that's, that's mine. Say, no, actually, if you're a person, again, under the authority of God's word, you say, it all belongs to God. You remember Psalm 24. I bet you say, might not know it's Psalm 24, but the first line is Psalm 24, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It all belongs to him. Or 1 Corinthians 4, 7, you say Paul's hitting on the same thing. He's actually talking about uh, uh, spiritual gifts, mental abilities here. He says, uh, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you didn't receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? You say, that's right. What I've been able to do in my life as a, you know, as a Christ follower, you say, I don't think so much that I've played my hand well, right, that I've been more clever than the others, or say I'm really good at making deals, but rather to say God has given us gifts, and I'm to steward them for the short time that I have. It all belongs to him, but he's entrusted it with me. You think about how this can spill over into a very practical area, like our finances, right? I know a lot of people will ask me this question. They say, Pastor, is it better to tithe off your gross income or your net income? You know, and I, I said, well, thank you very much for, for thinking about giving a gift to the church, but that's not the right idea at all. Say, I hope I'm here in this pulpit a very long time. You'll never hear me talk or challenge anybody to tithe. You say, tithing's this legalistic mentality. You know, you gotta give this amount in just this way off this amount. You say, that's not what God wants. What he really wants is us, I think, to understand this notion of biblical stewardship. God owns everything, and he's entrusted certain things to me to look after as his steward. The question isn't whether the pastor or whoever else thinks we're being good with whatever we have. The question's at the end of the day when we face the judge, right, who owns all things, say, have we been good stewards of our minds, of our resources, in order to advance his kingdom? That stewardship helps us understand these questions. Again, verse 28, that cultural mandate. So here it is, God making the universe, making creation, making earth, all the animals, and he tells human beings to fill it, to have dominion, to subdue it. In other words, to look after it in a way that's pleasing and honorable to our God. All kinds of implications. Now, I think a number of ways, even in our passage this morning, that we can think about this. Again, verse 28, the very first command in the Bible. A lot of people say that's a good trivia question. What's the first command in the Bible? Say, well, to have children, uh, to be fruitful and multiply. And I realize this is a very delicate area because some of us, we've not been able to have children or because of medical reasons that it's not wise for us to have children. I realize all those are not really what we're driving at here. What I think the point is, is this, that God expects the husband and the wife to be the natural arena to bring forth new life and to nurture it, and that's a very good thing to do. To be fruitful, to multiply, that part of the way we're good stewards is by bringing in new life and teaching our young ones about godly stewardship, that everything's God's and we're here and it's his creation. How do we best look at it? And this comes over and over again. You flip ahead, you don't have to do it now, but to Genesis chapter nine, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. Guys, this is the natural sphere. Two godly Christian people come together that there's an expectation that this is the arena for new image bearers to come in and to be looked after. You know, I think of Hannah Arendt. She made that quip. She said, you know, every generation's invaded by barbarians. We call them children. And uh, it is the task of Christ followers to love new life, 
to welcome these new gifts. This notion of stewardship with my children changed me very much because I remember the very first time, you know, your child gets ill. <laughs> You're pretty scared, aren't you? Say, well, this doesn't look good. You know, they're running a high fever. Are we gonna have to go to the hospital? Or maybe friends of ours, child's born with some serious birth defects and needs those early operations on that little body. You say, that's a terrible moment, isn't it? A lot of some have been here, been there. And you say, how wonderful then to really think about stewardship. My children aren't here because I own them, because I've done everything great, because my body is great or whatever it is. Actually, God's entrusted me with a gift that I'm a steward of this little person, of this soul, and I'm gonna point this little soul to Christ to raise them up in a way that understands who God is and who we are. Do you see? It kind of changes your thinking. Your child's ill. Say, God, I, I love this child. You've entrusted it to me, but it's your child. Help me to be a good steward. You see, it changes the way we think. Instead of thinking of ownership or that's mine or I'm a crafty person or whatever, to say, God, you've blessed me with so many gifts. How do I use what I've been given to reflect it back upon your glory? I know Mallory, my wife, tough decision in today's time to be a stay-at-home mom. So it's not one that I think our culture really says, oh, you know, good job. We're really happy about that. But I'll tell you, say we every day say that is Christian service to look after young children, to bring them up in the Lord, say, be fruitful, multiply, make new stewards, right? This is the natural arena to cultivate them, to, to, to look after what's God's and look after these gifts is a wonderful Christian thing to do. Friends, we're stewards. One way we do this is by being fruitful, multiplying, welcoming new life, and teaching them too about who God is, that we're stewards of our children. It's a good thing to, for Christian couples to bring in uh, bring in Christian children. Now here I step very delicately. I know, again, I'm not talking about medical issues or anything like that, but I am very surprised, and I said, I've just tried to look at what the Bible says. I sometimes will meet two people that are Christ followers, and they'll say things like this. Well, we really like going out to dinner a lot, and we really like taking really fancy vacations, and because of that, eh, we're just probably not gonna have children. I would just say, if, you, if you're thinking that way, if it's not... Say, think about this passage. Think about children as a gift. Think about this cultural mandate. Say, what's the biggest impression I really can make right now is to raise up new stewards, new image bearers who understand who God is, new folks to bring him glory, to think about this mandate here. Be fruitful, multiply. Children are gifts from the Lord, stewarding them, looking after them, nurturing. It was one of the most important tasks, responsibilities that God has given us. Again, I don't think this is saying don't use contraception. I don't think this is saying that every couple should have as many children as possible. What I think it's saying is that Christians always delight in the gift of new children. It's a good thing to nurture them. It's a good thing. Now, also, moving forward now, that I don't think we need to be, well, we don't need to be ethically compromised about animal husbandry and uh, cultivating plants for food, right? It's right there that the Lord God has given the man authority, that is human beings authority over every plant yielding seed and over the trees and all the seeds that bring forth fruit and all the animals. Say, this is there, right? Not for us to plunder, but rather for us to be well-fed. We always want to distinguish time written and time written about. So you remember Genesis, this is the creation account. We don't really know when creation happened, but it's written by Moses in about 1400 BC, meaning that Moses' audience would have been practicing these kinds of things. They would have had domesticated animals, or they would have been practicing animal husbandry, and they would have been cultivating crops. And God's saying, I've given that to you. Enjoy it. 
that we don't have to say a lot of people say well do we really need to uh, you know, think about how you say we always want to be sustainable. Absolutely. We say we never want to overdo it or take more than we need. But the basic cultivation of food and of animals, you say, God says, this is a good gift. This is how I've arranged it. And they're there for us to be healthy. And that kind of leads into the third point there is that we never want to be wasteful. Say, no Christian would ever be deliberately destructive of an ecosystem. See, I don't think any person under the authority of God's word would ever be deliberately cruel to animals. Say, why is that? Say, because we're stewards. That I'm not the rightful owner of these things, right? It's on loan for me. I wouldn't abuse one of God's animals. I'm not gonna take more than I need. I'm not gonna, you know, take the earth so nobody else gets anything. Why? Because that's bad stewardship. You know, I was talking to uh, a friend after the last service and making this point, but I think made it better than I could, which is often the case when you talk after the sermons. Uh, but uh, a friend who said, you know, my daughter was a tour guide in Alaska. And the number one, she's a Christian, and she said, you know, the number one objection up there is you're giving the tours of the, the wonderful, um, the, the nature up there. So the number one accusation is, well, we can't get on board with those Christians because they hate the environment. You say, may it not be. Say, we of all people would care about the environment. You say, we care about ecosystems because they're gods. Say, we would never plunder. We want to do things sustainably. It's there for us to use, that's clear, but to do it in a way that's responsible and caring. So I look even, you know, I'm reading about these new machines that uh, take the plastics out of the rivers in Asia, and I say, well, this seems to me to be a very Christian thing to do. It's part of good stewardship. And I only raise this point to say, I think that looking after the world fits better in a biblical worldview than it does in a naturalistic one. In other words, I'm taking care of this area of the earth because God, it belongs to God, and I want to be a good steward versus the naturalist taking care of it for a future that they're not really sure what the purpose is, I guess, or if it's going to be. And what I'm trying to say here is that environmentalism, if we use that term, may it not be just something that other groups besides evangelical Christians do. But I hope if you have friends, they've long thrown out God, they're into the Green New Deal, you say, well, they put, you know, we evangelical Christians and a lot of the people who support the Green New Deal say a lot of times those two groups don't go together in people's minds. But I hope we can say, you know what? We care about the world too, but we do so because we believe it belongs to God and we're to be stewards of it. How do we do that well? So you see, stewardship helps us enter into these conversations where it's on loan. How do we best look after it? Now, two very practical cases, again, uh, besides those that come in from our text to say, what about stewardship? Let's press it a bit further. We're gonna look at work and technology. Work and technology. Now, work. A lot of us spend a lot of time grumbling about our work. So we grumble about our colleagues, we grumble about the task that we might see as meaningless, and we can't wait till Friday, you know, I turn on the radio, right, the thank goodness it's Friday or Wednesday, it's hump day, you know, we're almost there, we're kind of halfway through the week, you say, it seems like a lot of energies are spent uh, for us thinking about the weekends. As long as it's not those 40 hours where I'm doing something else, you know, which is really toil, labor, and a waste of my, there's nothing there, meaning I just gotta get out of work. Say, a lot of us view things that way. But in our passage, shocks us when we read it, but work comes before the fall. Hard work and keeping things comes before sin enters the world. Look at verse five of chapter two, right? God's saying that there's no plans at this point for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, but then this, and there was no man to work the land. 
In other words, who's going to look after things? Who's going to look after the plants? After all, who's going to be there to benefit from the fruits and the seeds and so forth? There's no, that's a problem, that there's no man to work from the land. Then if you look at verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That it's part of our good purpose, part of the meaning in our life is to do good work and to feel the rewards of that work. That we're not just those who say, you know, this, I have to do this in order to get through and I hate every moment of this, but rather to say there's meaning in my work because I represent God. Because he's called me to do this and to push it a little bit further is that I actually think God wants us, the way he designed us is for us to feel a degree of satisfaction from doing good work. Say so there can't be a sacred, secular divide. We've talked about this before. Say, so, well, you know, Shaw, you're a holy man. I mean, you're up at church. Your job to read the Bible all week. You say, you're the holy man, but all of us, I mean, what do we have to do? You know, we're just going, going through the grind. You say, I don't think that's a permissible biblical view. To say every Christ follower, we see our job as an arena where we can represent God well through our kindness allowing his light to shine through us through doing our jobs with excellence. And so I bring back the question, right, of capitalism. Is it wrong for a Christian to earn money? You say, not at all. I think God designed it this way, that he's given us certain capacities, minds to think we're in his image, right? We're to go out, to look at the world, right? To subdue it, to have dominion. We're there to work, to keep it, to feel a degree of satisfaction upon that. It's a good thing, Say others today, you say you're maybe a school teacher. Say it's very difficult right now to be a school teacher. I can't imagine. All kinds of different views on that. And you say, here we go again. I'm on the screen. I can't even be with my students or whatever it is. Is there any meaning at all in what I'm doing? You say, oh, yes, there is. There's a chance to make those little deposits in those lives, to be an encouragement to your colleagues to do your job with excellence, to be positive, even in a toxic work environment. Maybe some of you say work's a good thing. How thankful we should be as many have lost their jobs to be thankful for the jobs that we have. You know how many articles I've read in recent years about the problem of idle young men, that those between the ages of 20 and 30, you say they desperately would like a job, but they can't get a job for whatever reason. You say the kind of social ills that enter into the equation, right? Because what happens? We start to look at screens. We start to get pre do things that we ought not to be doing. You say, ha, huh, wait, God's made work. He set it up in a good way. We can be thankful for our jobs. See, a structure like capitalism is not the enemy. If you're a Christian, you say, yes, we want to always be honest to do our best, but it's never wrong to use the gifts God's given us to be good stewards and to use it to his glory. I like a couple of quotes here. I'll read from A.W. Tozer. This is a wonderful saying. Listen to this. As base a thing as money is, it yet can be transmitted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor, it can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmit itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. 
They say, what's Tozer saying? He's saying, look, it's not wrong to work hard. It's not wrong to make wise investments. It's not wrong to use your minds in order to be good stewards and to make wealth. But rather, how can we use what we've been given as rightfully God's to maximize his glory? Say, that's the Christian angle. Or how about this? I love the way Wesley put it, the great Methodist, great pietist. Remember what he said? He said, make all the money you can. Save all the money you can and give all the money you can. So I think Wesley's absolutely right in capturing this sentiment of stewardship. Say God wants us to again to be good stewards, to use the gifts that we've been given, to do it in a way that honors him, and then when God blesses us and entrusts us with more, to say how, we, the question is how can we use this to maximize his name? That's the mark of the Christian follower of Christ. We're to engage in meaningful work we're to use our minds and advance his kingdom. You see, that stewardship model changes it all. There's ownership. You know, a lot of say, well, I'm very good at my job. Look at all the money I've made. Uh, I'm a great owner. I've outsmarted all the rest. You say, that's the default sin in our nature as opposed to, God, you've given me gifts and you put me in this time and this place and you've blessed the work of my hands. Thank you for helping me feel a degree of satisfaction in this. How do I then steward this well to advance your name? See, very different. Okay, lastly, uh, here today, but I want to look at technology. Again, you say, why are we talking about technology? Are we supposed to be talking about that as Christian? I mean, capitalism, technology, really? Say, so, yes, I think it's here. Technology just means tool. Again, a lot of people might think, well, Christians are kind of weird on that. I mean, they don't, they're not that into newfangled gadgetry. They got to, you know, should we be kind of suspicious of that stuff? I say, not at all. I think this too comes right out of the first pages of the Bible. Look at how thankful we are for technology, this microphone so I can talk about the Bible, this building so we can sit and hear the Bible being read. You say, these all require technology. In fact, when we take the Lord's Supper, you say, bread doesn't grow right out of the ground, right? There's a degree of technology to be used even to make the bread. So technology is not the enemy of God, but rather God says, look, I've given you minds and tools and things to use to make a better civilization. You know the word culture we think about a culture, the kind of ethos of an environment, it comes from a word cultivate. I'm told in the, in the Middle English that culture was the place tilled. And you kind of can make a real clear move here, right, in Genesis chapter 2. between So here's the human, the crown of God's creation, made to subdue and have dominion, right, to exercise authority of his rightfully gods as a tenant and as a steward. And they're really to form a culture, that they're to make the raw materials that God's given into a civilization, something that's finely crafted, that civility is rightly ours. That's what we're to do, to look after what's God's, to civilize it, to make a culture, to use what he's been given us. That's the mandate we have. You know, in those words that I'm so happy that I made Pastor Joe, I think, read now three or four times, uh, there in, chapter, in uh, verse uh, 12, 11, and 12, he said, what about these little details and an overall kind of broad strokes narrative? How interesting is this, right? Where the Garden of Eden is, there's gold, and the gold is good, and there's bdellium and onyx stone. Say, why is this important, again, in Moses' time? Say, isn't God telling us that there's natural resources that God's given that are to be used by humans to make a better civilization. Bedellium, read far too much than I wanted to this week on bedellium, but bedellium seems to be a kind of resin for aromatics, for perfumes. 
And onyx is made for jewelry to make things look nice. And of course, we know gold, right? Gold and ornamentation and in buildings. In other words, is what's happening here, God's saying, look, I've given you these resources in the ground so that you can use your brains as human beings in order to make a civilization and to make things nice. That's the mandate that you have to cultivate, to create a culture, a civilization, to embrace technology and new tools to make a better world, to show people who I am. There's a little story that I think captures this well. There's a little short video you can YouTube it. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, developer of those Apple products. This is in the late 80s or in the early 90s, well before the computers really, um, you know, as we know it now. And Steve Jobs recalls a story when he's a boy of reading in a scientific magazine the study of the efficiency of locomotion across all animals. In other words, you take all the various animals, how much energy do the animals need to get from point A to point D, B? And he says the, the condor, the bird, uh, the condor is the most efficient animal in locomotion. And then he says these words, which again are very interesting. He says, humans, the crown of creation, right? Something we associate with the Bible. He says, the crown of creation was not all that impressive. They finished about a third down the list. But then he says this. He says, but then somebody said, well, what about a human being with a bicycle? And the human being with the bicycle goes from about a third of the way down to far and away, number one, way ahead of all the other animals. And then Steve Jobs says this. He says, I view the computer as the bicycle of the mind. And now Steve Jobs didn't know it, but I think he captured well the cultural mandate. See, there are other animals in God's kingdom that do things better or say, yeah, they're, they're impressive in their own right. I mean, humans can't stay underwater or run that fast or whatever. But when we use our minds, when we recognize that we're image bearers, when we understand this mandate to be innovative, to create a civilization and a culture, say nothing else compares. That's the cultural mandate to create a civilization, to use the gifts that we've been given, to use the tools in our minds to make a world which better and more honorably reflects God. So I hope today I'm going to return now to those very big questions at the beginning, right? So what about capitalism? Do we have to be socialists? I would say not at all. To say it's very good to use the gifts that God's given us in a way that pleases him to create wealth, to have more wealth, and then to use that to advance his name. That's a biblical good. That's good stewardship. What kind of job should I have? Is there more or less Christian jobs? Well, as long as you're not violating God's law, I would say, no, whatever we do this week, we represent him. We have meaningful work. We can feel that sense of appreciation from a job well done, a task done well. What about children? The most important thing we can do to look after them and nurture them. What about technological advancements? No doubt some are used to go against God, but what about those that can be used for God? Say, we too as Christians, that's the rightful turf of the cultural mandate. We can embrace those and think about those. You think about something even like an energy situation. I'm reading about new technologies and nuclear, uh, nuclear energy. You say, wait, it's very clean for the environment. It's gonna help out a lot of families. Uh, it's using minds to do better things. You say, this to me is a very good thing for us to do. I think you get the idea. There's a question, though, that this brings us to. Is that have I been a good steward of what God's entrusted to me? And I have to tell all you this morning that I have not been a good steward, that I've used things that God's given me to my eye to myself for my own gain and not for him. And thank goodness again that we come to the one who gave his life for us, right? 
that even as I'm a bad steward, even today, and not thinking about God, but thinking about myself, that I recognize Christ came for me in my sin, that he's redeemed me, that he's rescued me, and it's by his power and his strength that I can hope to become a better steward of what he's entrusted to me. And I hope that's for you as well, to say, may we think about being good stewards of our jobs and our children and our technologies. May we use that for his advancement, and Lord, help us to become better at that. So I'll invite Pastor Ian up to pray, uh, to lead us in a closing song as I pray. Father, we confess today that in this cultural mandate to look after what's yours, that we've gone astray, as we do in so many areas, that we've been guilty of plunder, that we've been guilty of self-gain, that a lot of times the good things that we have in life, we pat ourselves in the back and just say, well, we're better than everybody else or we really made a good deal. Help us to get out of that mindset, not sidelining hard work, but rather to say, God, you've given me gifts. I want to use the gifts that you've given me in order to be a blessing to others, to bring glory to you as we're designed. And help us, Lord, to have this mindset of that we don't own anything, you own everything, and that it's on loan for a short time. How do we look after it in a way that pleases you? That's the only question at the end of the day. Lord, have we done with what you've given us what pleases you? Help us to not be legalistic and selfish, but rather generous stewards. And so again, Lord Jesus, we lean upon you to do this. Help us to use all that we have for you for Christ's greater glory. Amen. Church, let's stand together.